Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. (laughs) Hey everyone, this is going to be such a great episode, but let me just tell you, there's a little background noise. I'm sneaking in a recording while Wilder is in the front room singing a very loud version of Let It Go. All right, I am absolutely off the charts excited about today's guest. I have known Siri Lindley for close to 20 years. In fact, uh, we were on the same, well, I don't know if we're on the same airplane, but we were at the same race in 1995 where I met Tim in Cancun. So we go way back. We didn't really know each other then, but you know, there's a lot of history. So I watched her dominate the triathlon scene for years, becoming number one in the world for two straight years in the World Cup despite the fact that she couldn't swim a lick. I'm not kidding. And we talk about that a little bit today. Um, After she retired, she became a coach. And not surprisingly, I would call her one of the best coaches in the world today, if not the best coach. Uh, One of her athletes is a former podcast guest, Miranda Carfrey. If you remember that episode. So Siri has a magic way of identifying what an athlete needs and then crafting a physical and psychological plan to help that athlete tap his or her full potential. It's absolutely amazing. It's a gift. And she is one of the most positive people you will ever meet despite her own admitted insecurities. Our episode was hilarious. I arrived early, so true to form, to series form, that is. She said, just go in and set up. I'll be there soon. She's just very open and welcoming. So I walked into her amazing home in Boulder. She's got three rescue dogs and what looked like a dog training area outside that it kind of basically encompassed the entire yard. So I get set up and minutes later, I literally hear hoofbeats and Siri and her gorgeous wife, Beck, literally come riding up on two beautiful steeds. Turns out they're their own rescue horses. Siri jumps off her horse, grabs a glass of water, and we start. The minute we finish the interview, she runs out the door to volunteer at the Longmont Humane Society. I mean, who is this woman? Well, you're going to find out. So let's bring her on. All right, Siri, you ready? Ready. Oh my God, I'm so excited to see you. <laughs> I'm so excited to see you. I cannot believe you wanted me as a ah! guest. This is going to be one of those interviews. It is. I'm bubbling. Okay, bubbling over. By the way, this is how we're starting. Check this out. I, You guys can't see this. Look, I see. Check this out. I brought your book. You're amazing, but you yeah. should have just written me and yeah. I would have sent you one no. and signed it, but there's not enough pages to sign it for someone like you because I um, have so much to say to you. Yeah, I just handed her a pen. She's signing it now. But I know I need an hour. 
to tell you how amazing you are and to reminisce on all our amazing memories. So I will do that later before we go. And you know what? We will. Let's sign yeah. out at the very end because the very there end. is so much to say. Anyway, but Siri, I, I actually want to lead with your book because we're going to dig into your past and, and all the incredible memories we share, both good and bad, you know, during times in our lives when we were going through transitions and all of that. But um, let's just start off by congratulating you on writing your first book. Thank you. I have goosebumps. It was a long time coming. I started about 10 years ago and stopped abruptly when I realized that I was not ready to talk about a lot of the things that without putting them in the book would not make it the book I wanted it to be. So it took me 10 years to really become comfortable with wanting to share absolutely everything because I knew if I did that, it would be able to positively influence so many people. Well, and I'm sh I know it is. It influenced me when I read it. Okay, so we are going to put a link. There is a link in the show notes to series book. You, you guys, you have to get it. It's a great read. It, there is a lot of stuff about racing and training, but there's even more just about a personal journey that comes with all the ups and downs of finding yourself, right? Yeah, exactly. And you can't, you have to have space from the hard things in life to actually talk about them. Absolutely. Right? Space and just understanding that you wouldn't change a single thing because having gone through those things um, make you who you are today and being able to share those things can hopefully, you know, limit the number of people that go through the same thing. And you know, I, I almost want to call that maturity. <laughs> I don't know if I'm mature yet. You know, I haven't reached 50 yet, so give me some time. <laughs> well, let's let's kind of start from the beginning a little bit because a lot of people haven't read your book yet. And I, I knew you as an athlete first, uh -huh. and then I would start to hear stories about you. And you would share little tidbits of what your life was like growing up. I want you to take people back. Yeah, well, and I would share little tidbits in the past, but really I'm a very, very private person. So even my closest friends were reading this book and saying, wow, I didn't even know that. I mean, there mm. were maybe two, two people in my life that knew most of what's in that book. But where would you like me to begin? There's well, so much. I think like, you know, your background athletically and just... Oh, by the way, <laughs> this is how we okay. roll. Okay, and and wifey's coming in. Wifey, we're on live right we're now. We're live, baby. <laughs> you know, one of Siri's passions, actually. Let's let's do a quick uh, side note. One of your passions is rescue animals. Yes, and we, you're hearing some of them. <laughs> yeah, you're hearing a lot of them. We have three rescue dogs, a rescue cat, and two rescue horses. And we actually just created the Believe Ranch and Rescue, which saves dogs off of death row where basically they're inevitably going to be put down so we try and save them as you know before that happens and provide them with medical care and shelter and food and water and so much love um, and the appropriate training so that one day we'll be able to connect them with their forever home um, and we do the same for horses um, we rescue the horses off of slaughterhouse uh, feedlots where they're sold for meat. Um, the two that we have now were rescued from the Colorado Horse Rescue, and we hope to, like I said, we just um, created this, um, but we it has been a lifelong mission for both Beth, Beck and I, and we have full intentions to save as many beautiful souls 
as we can. Okay, so this is going to lead back into your foundation, but you, why? What has tugged at you that made this part of your mission and your purpose in life? Um, it's so funny. I get so emotional when I even think about the role that my animals have played in my life. And in reading the book, I they made me cut a lot of stuff out because it was just too long. Um, and I really, the only disappointment I have with the finished product is that my stories of my animals um, are so important to me. And basically through every part of my life from a little kid until today, my dogs, which have all been rescues, have rescued me. Um, as a kid, I was very lonely. I was very anxious. I was very afraid. My dogs were always there for me. As an adult, you know, my, my various dogs have gone through absolutely everything. My greatest moments, my toughest moments, my most horrible times, my most wonderful times, but they have been the one constant in my life. They love unconditionally. They love you no matter whether you're succeeding or failing, they love you whether you look pretty or ugly or you know, whether you're feeling great or, or terribly down or sad. And so them being the only constant, the one thing that never mm -hmm. left me until it, you know, they passed away, which was always the saddest moment in the world, but they brought me so much joy. And I would say that so many of my greatest lessons in life have come from my dogs. Um, my love for running, for instance. Um, I had Whoopi, who you remember. I remember Whoopi. <laughs> Nobody can forget Whoopi. And I knew every everyone, people knew who my athletes were because every athlete had scratches up and down their legs <laughs> from Whoopi jumping up and down on them. She was such a lover. Well, that's the name Whoopi Goldberg, Jumping Jack Flash. Yeah. Um, but I ran with her every day and she would just everything, every run, every second was just like the greatest moment in life. And she would just appreciate all the little things and just the joy and passion that she showed when I take her out running. And that, you know, when I ran, that's what I felt. I felt what she felt. And that's how I fell in love with running. Running became my strength. Um, but also just how to love unconditionally and how to be loyal and how to um, really appreciate the little things in life and find great joy in those little things. That's what I've learned from my animals. And um, because my animals have all been rescues and all the ones I have now were pretty much given up on. But what you realize is that if you just give them a, a chance and you give them a lot of love, um, that they grow into the most wonderful little partners in life and everybody deserves a chance we as humans get educated or we have opportunities to learn or to be a part of things and you know nobody puts us down if we're failing or if we haven't made it yet or if we don't look good enough we don't get put down we get given chances to better ourselves and and to ultimately make it and the dogs that are on death row, you know, being put down because they haven't been adopted. Some, there are some places that literally they, dogs get taken in. And if they're not adopted by the end of the week, they're put down. And, and to me, that's just heartbreaking because I think about how they literally could rescue a human if the human oh. gave them a chance. And so, yeah, wow. I mean, that's where it all comes from, but they are just beautiful souls and they have brought so much joy into my life. And into Beck's life and into our family. And, and I just want more people. Um, it's not just us rescuing 
the dogs and the horses, um, inevitably the dogs and horses end up rescuing their human as well. Um, so that's the goal ultimately. That is such an incredible message too. And your point of like humans are given a chance, maybe not at first, maybe not always, maybe not by all people, right? but in the end we can usually get ourselves to turn a situation around. Mm -hmm. And you know, Siri, your story is one of growth and I wouldn't even say rebuilding, just building yourself into who you are and becoming a whole person finally by this point in your life through all your experiences. And when we talk about how you got here, first of all, the messages that you have and the compassion and energy you have towards saving others in this world in the form of rescue dogs and horses and even people, because that's what you're doing now. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that's, it's really important to dig into what you mentioned briefly, which is that you grew up very different than that. You were insecure, you were afraid, you write about it in a way in the book that it's just so relatable and just heartbreaking because you do have an upbringing where you weren't wanting you know, in in the form of maybe material things or whatever, but you were wanting emotionally. And you had a few people who provided that for you, but you were helping them at the same time. They couldn't maybe all the way give back to you. So I don't know, maybe I kind of want to just start with a little bit about your your background as, a, as just a young girl on the East Coast mm. growing up in your family life, you know? Yeah, and I struggled with this part because we, I had a wonderful family up until I was four years old. My mom and dad were married. We lived in a tiny little yellow house. We had dogs and there was just so much love. And I just remember just feeling so safe. But then they got divorced and my mom got remarried to a very famous man. Um, And our lives just completely changed because he swept her off her feet and um, caused her a lot of pain before they eventually ended up getting married, Um, but swept her off her feet and and they were traveling all the time and living the high life. And as much as my mom loved me and my sister, she was in love with this man. And in that day and age, having a husband was something that every woman, um, that was the ultimate goal is, is find a husband, get married, be a wonderful wife. And So I don't fault her for that because that was how things were in that time. And my mom did the best that she could to still uh, give us what we needed. And where I struggled with telling this story is that I don't want to sound like a spoiled brat. We lived in this enormous house, which I hated, and I'll tell you more about that. We didn't need money. We had all the food that we could need. We we had everything that you'd think Mm -hmm. we could ever want. But what was lacking was um, connection and love and being cared for and those simple moments that I just live off of now. You know, that to me is being rich, is having your heart full and feeling safe and feeling loved and feeling connected. And that's what was missing. Um, And because of that, you know, between the ages of four and 16, which is when my mom was married to Frank, I was very much alone. My sister chose a very different path, and and I find that so interesting as well because we dealt with the same exact circumstances, but we all 
make choices in our lives and we decide, you know, do we want to use this story to say, this is why I didn't make it? Or do we want to use this story to say, this is why I made it? Because nothing was going to stop me and I'm going to do it anyway. And that is that just a mental shift? It's a total mental shift. It's, it's the story that you decide to live by, the story you decide to tell yourself. So you and can decide your own story? I absolutely believe that with all my heart. I mean, some people have the story. I was just writing an article actually on the Super Bowl this year, how so many people would have thought in the fourth quarter with the New England Patriots down by 25 points that it's, we'll just wait till the whistle blows because this is over. Um, but Tom Brady, as a quarterback, probably in his mind holds the story that no matter how bad things are, you keep fighting to the finish, anything is possible, never give up. And that led to them being able to have the most epic comeback in the history of the Super Bowl. I'm not even a football fan. I just love the story behind it. But, <laughs> you know, if we own the story, and as an athlete, that's a story yeah. I hold. That's, yeah, that's the story mm-hmm. Marinda Carfrey holds, that yep. it ain't over until you cross that line. And um, so in life, we can we can decide to have certain beliefs. My belief is that if I work hard enough and I put my heart and soul into everything that I'm doing, that somehow, someday, it's going to pay off and it will work out and I will make it. Nothing will stop me. And in my story, when we fail, and we will fail often, we learn. That's where we learn. That's where we grow. We grow through our failures. So when I do fail, which I do all the time, instead of looking at it as, oh, I suck and I give up and I should just do something different, I say, okay, I just learned another lesson. This Mm -hmm. is going to make me stronger. Now I'm going to be even more ready to make this happen. Well, and I I love that mindset. I mean, that's the mindset of a champion. You know, and I'm wondering, too, if when you were growing up and you were being tested, so in your gut at four years old, five years old, you knew that this man was not a good energy force in your life. Mm -hmm. You couldn't control that he was there because you're four or five or, you know, six or 10. You can't just leave. Mm -hmm. But um, you, you had to learn that other people can control how you feel or you can not let other people control how you feel. Exactly. And how powerful is that? Oh, huge. Relationships in, you know, striving to achieve something in your job or in your sport. And yeah, I mean, a couple things came out of this. First of all, you know, when Frank came and said, I want to marry your mother, but I'm not going to do it unless I have your permission. And I stubbornly said, there's no way you're marrying my mother. No, you can't marry her. How old were you then? Like five or six. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I don't even know <laughs> who, amazing. like, I, I don't know where yeah. that little girl yeah. came from, but I'm proud of her. But the thing was, he didn't listen. He married married her anyway. So one of my lifelong missions became um, to have a voice, a voice that people actually listen to, um, to have worked hard enough and proven myself enough where what I have to say is worth paying attention to and that what I have to say is worthwhile and can positively influence someone, not negatively, but help empower them and, and help them be the best that they can be. So, yeah, I mean, we... I was so terrified and anxious all the time. Um, I didn't know, I just, I was 
like I don't know why, but like my my mom would go away, and and we were meant to have this housekeeper that was staying with us, and I was only at this time, you know, ten, eleven, and I guess our housekeeper was taking care of her sick husband, so I'd be all alone in this like I don't know maybe. 5,000 square foot house that was dark in this driveway that's like a half a mile long. And I was terrified. I, I had my dogs and they made me feel safe. But finally, throughout my life, another theme became I need to make myself feel safe. I need to realize that I'm my own biggest supporter. I'm my own protector. I'm my own, like it's me and me against the world. So I need to learn to love myself and respect myself and take care of myself and not depend on anyone else um, wow. to move forward in life. And that's a really advanced understanding or way of thinking when you're not even a teenager, you know? And maybe you weren't thinking about it that way at the time, but there was something in it that you just knew you had to build yourself up. Yeah, and that took time. You know, it started out, I had intense obsessive compulsive disorder you know oh, you wow. try and find how did it manifest oh just so you oh, know you gotta, like you I, I, yeah i gotta talk i mean when you hear about like turning the yeah. lights on and off until you feel safe or, or yeah. tapping on yeah. things until you get a thought out of your head like i did all of that and it made me feel crazy and it made me feel out of control and it made and and when i say that i got over these things i'm talking about over like 15 20 years yeah. i'm not talking about i was 10 and at 11 i'd cured myself of this disorder mm -hmm. no i mean it got so intense or or saying a prayer over and over in my head please god let me be okay please god bring my mom home safe please and over and over like 20 million times yeah. i know it sounds crazy but i also know that a lot of people listening can relate in yes, some way shape or form they can. and you think it's a temporary uh, fix for yourself because it somehow makes you feel by saying it enough that you're going to be okay but eventually I reached a point and this wasn't until college where I thought I feel like a crazy person and I feel out of control and I need to get a grip I was too afraid to talk to anyone about it but I decided I said Siri like and, I, and now I'm going to sound crazy because I'm talking to myself. But I said, Siri, like, we have to live together every second of every hour of every day for the rest of our lives. We have got to sort this crap out. We've got to figure this shit out. Like, we can't keep doing this because this craziness is not going to lead to anything good. And so I decided that I was going to start working at mm. um, stopping this behavior. And ultimately, I did by... Um, replacing it with the right kind of thinking and staying out of my head. Um, the biggest shift was wanting, having the intention of living my life from a place of love and not from a place of fear. Because I lived from a place of fear in everything I did. And when I made that shift in my head, I decided I am going to appreciate everything I have in my life that makes me happy, appreciate every opportunity I have and live in gratitude, which is basically love. Love is gratitude and live from a place of I'm doing what I love and I'm going to put my heart and soul into this and let the cards fall where they may. I'm just going to give it all I have and appreciate the opportunity. And, and so, that shift saved me really. So when people are relating to this and they're hearing the voices in their head and they can't turn it off, what advice do you have for them to make that shift? Is that you have to understand that you're in your mind 
And the mind is a, it's a brilliant place when it's focused on the right things, but it also can be a very dangerous place that makes you feel crazy. And you have to stay out of there because it is not a, an effective place to be. Come back to your heart and ask yourself the question, whatever it is that you're freaking out about, like, okay, why are you freaking out about this? What's the worst that can happen? What is the story that you're telling yourself in regards to this? And then ask yourself, is this really true? Um, mm. Is this really going, inevitably going to happen? Um, is this, and, and then you ask yourself, and I learned a lot of this, you know, I was been reading Tony Robbins's stuff since college, and oh, yeah. he was a huge um, influence on my life because what he spoke, his words just resonated deep within my soul. Um, and then it's like, okay, well, what if, what if the opposite were true? Whatever you're worrying about, happening? What if the opposite was true, which is obviously a good thing happening? What if you focus on that? How does that make you feel? What will that lead to? And then you realize how much better that story feels and it becomes a shift. Mm -hmm. um, but the biggest thing is get out of your head, get into your heart. Um, you know, where, fa where focus goes, energy flows, which means if I'm going to focus on, oh my God, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose most likely I'm going to lose. If I focus on, I'm going to do my best and I'm going to, I'm going to finish strong. I'm going to finish strong. I'm going to finish strong. Most likely I'm going to finish strong. So really be disciplined. We're also disciplined, especially athletes in our lives, you know, waking up and getting our training done and taking care of the kids, whatever it is, but we're so disciplined. Use that same discipline for your mindset, your thinking. Don't allow yeah. those Mm -hmm. those self-sabotaging thoughts to take over come back to your heart come back to gratitude come back to you know the stuff that is actually going to help you and not hurt you i just i love this conversation you talk about needing and, and wanting to have a voice in this world and it starts with your inner voice mm -hmm. and you have to really learn how to listen to it and then guide it yeah. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We got to talk about sports a little bit here. <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, you, you became the best in the world as a triathlete, but you weren't a triathlete growing up. No, I, I was a field hockey, ice hockey and lacrosse player, team sport player, like all of that. And I loved it more than anything. But then I think I kind of realized that that was a safe place to be in, to always have a team around you, mm. a team that could win even if you didn't play your best, a team that you know you were contributing to and you were definitely an important part of. But what really was my role? Um, and I think I reached a point where I wanted to, again, I'm trying to find this respect for myself and this love for myself. And I don't mean that in a, oh, I love myself, but like a, like Why just, not? just self-respect, <laughs> well, you, you know, and, and, you know, appreciating yeah. mm -hmm. who I am. And so when mm -hmm. I, um, learned about triathlon through a friend of mine in Massachusetts, this was back in, um, 1993, um, I was like, wow, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. People of all shapes and sizes and ages and temperaments and, you know, everything. And they were all out there completely driven by this desire to want to find out what they're made of or to experience something that they never thought was possible for them. And I was so intrigued by that. And to me, it was so attractive because it was an opportunity for me to find out what I'm made of on my own without a team around me yep. that can, 
you know, support me if I'm having a bad day and we can still win regardless. Um, so that was the, the attraction for me was, okay, this is an area where I can truly find out who I am, what I'm made of, and can I do this sport that looks impossible to me right now? And I think we're all getting a real sense for your kind of growth evolution. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Yeah. Totally. And by the way, Siri, you went to an Ivy League school, you got a degree in psychology, you're smart, you're in your own head, you're in other people's heads. Like, I can understand why a grueling, gut wrenching sport that often leaves people puking and pooping their pants on the side of the road <laughs> called to you. I mean, it called to me too, it calls to a lot of people. Yeah. So, so you do your first triathlon. Okay. So, first of all, I think it's a little bit intimidating when you're like, hey, I'm just going to become a triathlete now. Like, how do you, you got to get a bike? You totally. got to find some like swim goggles. Like, how did you even navigate those first? The beginning. Uh, well, I had this amazing friend, Lynn Oski, <laughs> who was the one who introduced me to the sport. And I came to watch her race. That's where I discovered triathlon. And when she crossed the line, I nearly like knocked her over with excitement saying, this is the coolest thing ever. Please help me figure it out. So she really took me under her wing and um, got me started and gave me my first goggles and my swim cap. And I bought her next door neighbor's bike and um, it was crazy. I mean, I, I didn't have all the high end stuff right off the bat. I, I bought a hundred dollar probably 10 good speed bike <laughs> with a basket, which I was stuck. I, I won't mention this whole thing, but the, my first bike was her next door neighbor's bike. It was a hundred bucks. It was so awesome. I couldn't believe it had like 10 different speeds on it. And it came with a basket. And <laughs> Did I thought, it have a bell? Uh, maybe I don't know I don't I think I might have had one of those horns but it didn't oh. work but it had the basket and the basket oh. was key because I loved you know I always loved working out to music and I had my little you know radio thing and I'd stick it in the basket and I'd cruise around on my 10 speed with the basket with my music blast is that what you did awesome. your first did you do your first race on that bike too? I didn't because I flew all the way out to Colorado to hide I didn't want anyone to know that I was racing because I was pretty sure it was going to be a little bit of a disaster. Came out to Colorado. My mom picked me up. We rented a bike. All the bikes had been rented out except for like this 100-pound mountain bike. I thought it was awesome. I was like stoked. I was like so stoked. Were you and it in had, Boulder? It was in Englewood. Englewood, Colorado, which I remember as being the hilliest, most hard race I've ever done. And about 15 years later, I went back to Englewood and I'm like, there's not a single hill. Like, what was that course? <laughs> Where was it? And it was just because I had this oh, big heavy perception, bike. baby, I know. Um, but back to that first race, I mean, it was pretty much a disaster. And I, I wanna save that story for people to read in the book. But Oh, it's I, a great story. I, I, a lot of people think that it's that it couldn't be true how ridiculously painful I was and embarrassing, but it is, there's no, exaggeration whatsoever that is exactly how the race went and basically i mean everybody that was watching was just horrified at, at what i was doing out there and they were some were laughing <laughs> some sure? some felt like crying you know the faces were just like so are they still burned into your memory well, well what happened is on that day i finished the race like near dead last and my mom had packed up the entire car and i'm like mom the awards are in the awards are at one o'clock. 
Like, we can't leave now. And she looked at me like, oh, my God, my daughter actually thinks she's going to win an award. But she stayed and waited with me <laughs> patiently. And I, all I knew is that it was the greatest thing I've ever experienced in my life. But that night when I got in bed, you know how we all get so oh, yeah. fragile once we lie yeah. down in bed and we kind of, mm-hmm. you know, we start breathing slower and we start remembering things. And suddenly all the looks on the faces of the people watching the race came, came to me. Um, for the first time. And I just started bawling at their looks of pity and embarrassment and horror, shock. And I just started bawling. And I ran into my mom's bedroom and I'm like, Mom, I, I just so embarrassing at, at how bad I was. And she was like, Oh, honey, I'm so proud of you. And you're so good at so many other things. Don't worry. And I said, No, I have got to become good at this. All I want in my life is to become great in this sport. I want nothing more. And she looked at me like, oh God, this poor, my poor (laughs) mom, all the choices I make in my life, she's like, oh God, this is gonna be difficult, okay. Um, But she said, I will support you in this mission for two years, but promise me if it's not working out, you'll, you know, go do something that suits you better. And well, sure enough, yeah, it worked out. Thank I God. Mean, two years later, I think was 1995, and we may not remember each other, but we crossed paths because we were both at the IT World Champs in Cancun. Oh yeah, I idolized you. What? I you didn't did. know me. I yet. did. I, I idolized. Like, I, was, I knew you. Maybe you. Tim. Uh, no, 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 no. I really did. Because when did you and Tim get together? We met on the plane going to that race. Yeah. Okay. Well, I seem to remember just thinking <laughs> I was scared to death because I, I thought I'd be racing you, which... I think we might have been in different age groups. We were in different age groups, but I thought, oh God, <laughs> do I have to compete against this woman? Oh, come on. Already I'll, I'll put myself at second now. Oh, I mean, right. I, I, I love that. Yeah. But so, um, yes, I do remember that. But Well, and it's and so just by nature being there, I mean, there's the story. You were already on your way, right? And uh, shortly after that, did you turn pro? I did. I had set this total unrealistic expectation where I would only turn pro if I won world championships overall and national championships overall. And of course I didn't. And I thought that was going to be the year where maybe I might have a chance. I'd somehow, Mm -hmm. somehow, well, I, I do know how I just literally devoted every single second of my life to becoming the best that I could be in the sport. But I, I, think I came in third or something you'd think I remember I don't remember any results I yeah. just remember no, I the it. experience but and I was on the beach and I saw Karen Smyers who had just won the world championship and Kona and, three weeks and before. Kona three weeks before uh-huh. and she was my hero and I saw her and she was on the beach drinking a beer and that made her even more of my oh, hero I'm like so oh my god cool. she knows how to she's relax so cool. and so I walked over to her and I introduced myself and I was like probably peeing my pants which I do sometimes when I'm <laughs> excited and, and scared and and she said how'd your race go and I told her and she said oh well are you thinking of turning pro and I said no I, I can't do that until I win world championships and win national championships and she said well you may be waiting a lifetime because you can't have that kind of an expectation that's so specific she said trust me you need to turn pro now it'll lift your level 
It'll, mm-hmm. it, you will automatically go faster because you have to. And she said, I really feel like you should turn pro now. And that's all it took was hearing from the current world champion. I'm like, okay, I'll give it a try. And then it became wow. about not wanting, as if she ever thought about me again. I mean, she would have never remembered me, but I kept thinking I cannot fail because I have to, I have to live up to what she believes I can do. So, Man, we got to call Karen. Yeah, we do. Thank yeah. her for everything you're <laughs> doing in this her. world. Exactly. No, really. So, you know, your rise to the top was really impressive considering you could not swim. Okay. <laughs> and we know that this is true. This is not me making fun of you. Sorry, guys. Oh, yeah. We love We, yeah, love, we, love, guys. we love the barking. Love it's, it's background music. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, this is how it was. You couldn't swim. You were not a swimmer. And yet you know, you were on this path to become the best in the world, or maybe at the beginning, the best you could be. Mm-hmm. Um, you had some incredible coaches along the way. I Yoli had, from uh, Boulder mm-hmm. and then Brett. I want to talk about both of them. Um, what did you learn? Like, how did you get, how did you go from being a non-swimmer and in your head that had to be one of the hardest things because you start the race in the water. Mm-hmm. So when you are not a strong swimmer, you are already starting at a disadvantage when you get to the legs that you can do well, right? Exactly. And luckily, the story that I've lived by in my life is that things don't have to look perfect to end up in a good way. So, you know, that that's a lucky little belief that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Yoli Cassis, uh, God, she was just amazing. And actually, as a coach, I think I used so much of what she taught me. And what I loved about Yoli the most is that she um, made it very clear that me as a human being is so much more important to her than me as the athlete. And therefore, how how I live my life as a human being, um, that's what will determine my success. Am I kind to others? Am I respectful to others? Am I always just doing my best? Um, That's what mattered most to her. And um, that's lived on with me. I mean, with me, I look up at my athletes as people first, and I Mm -hmm. want them to be the best people they can be um, for themselves and for others um, more than I care about what they accomplish. Because I also know that if they feel good about themselves as human beings, they're not going to grapple with that sometimes problem that we have where we don't know if we deserve it or not. Ah. That's a big one. And I think when you lead your life in a way where you can feel good about who you are, um, that there's less of that. And when you work hard and you leave no stone unturned, that you can truly believe that, yes, I deserve to do well and mm-hmm. I'm going to do everything in my power to make that happen. Yep. As far as, you know, the swim, Yoli threw me in with Jane Scott's master's program and Jane was brilliant in that she just threw me in a lane that was way too fast for me, probably your lane. <laughs> and I got pummeled and just lapped over and over again by you and everyone else in there. And I thought, God, you're just going to, I'm going to be the most unpopular person in this master's class. No, I was so annoying though. No, you were amazing. It would be this (sighs) thing where you're like, oh my God, Siri is on my feet I know, but wasn't that devastating? (laughs) No, what it was is you were, you were really just honing your craft. You were being so smart and just, I actually have a question. So today you're a coach. We're kind of going all over the place right now. That's fine. um, What do you think is the most important? Talent, work ethic, or mental toughness? Work ethic and mental toughness, by far, really. I mean, talent, if you don't have those other two things, 
Talent I, doesn't matter. You can have all the talent in the world. Without those two things, you're not going to go anywhere. Exactly. And yeah. those have been my biggest frustrations okay. as a coach is having people like that where it's like, if you only knew. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. But you've got to want it. Yeah. And even with me, I'm not necessarily talented, but God, I was willing to just, as far as becoming the swimmer I needed to be, I was willing to swim 100,000 or, or wait, how many meters? 100,000. <laughs> not a 100,000. Yeah, wait, hold on. I was swimming 10K a day, seven <laughs> yeah. days a week for like two months. Oh my goodness. So whatever that is, 70,000 meters a week. I was willing to do whatever it took, yeah. obviously like hard work wise, mm-hmm. um, to get where I needed to go. Nothing yep. was going to stop me. And, and that, um, I didn't have the ability, um, but I had the work ethic and I had that toughness where I didn't care how bad it hurt. I was going to make it no matter what. Well, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about Brett Sutton because you went after, you know, you and Yoli pushed as far as you could. And then you kind of got recruited or suggested to maybe join this, this guy. Mm -hmm. And he is known as the guy who creates champions, but there is some kind of crazy mystery about him. You talk a lot about him in the book. Um, what, what made you want to do that? Well, Loretta Harrop was my idol at the time. She was winning everything. She was just so tough, and I had such respect for her. And the fact that she was the one who invited me initially, like that was a massive. I thought, this has to be happening for a reason. What an incredible opportunity. Put yeah. my fear aside. I need to do this. And um, apparently he was like, I'm not taking an American. And she had to like really fight hard to get him to accept me. And and when he did, um, he said the only reason why he accepted me is that he'd seen a race where I was in like, I don't know, 41st place or something. I never know the exact number. So if it's different in the book, I just can't really not remember. Winning. But I, yeah, I was but I'm way back, like 41st. And it was like the last K and I was just distressed destroying myself trying to catch 40th <laughs> and he saw that and he respected that he thought yeah. okay you know that's I that's that. what I what I want to see and um so he took me on and and I was it was terrifying I mean he is a brilliant um mind coach um he's a brilliant coach he obviously has created more world champions than any other coach in the history of our sport probably any sport and, but he coaches in a way very different to how I coach. Um, I will follow a lot of his principles, but we are very, very different as, as human beings, I think. Um, both equally passionate, but just different. And what he did is, his brilliance with me is that he knew that I didn't believe that I had what it took to go from what I was able to do, which was like fourth place finishes in, in the World Cup races at that point in time. But I just didn't think I had what it took to make the podium. And that was my dream. Um, and so what he did when I arrived, he just gave me unimaginable, out of control amounts of training that literally scared the crap out of me, had me in tears every single night. But what was brilliant about it is that every day I somehow did it. Every day I somehow succeeded in tackling the tasks that he gave me, overcoming my fear and, and, and proving to myself that, yeah. oh my God, I am pretty strong. I am pretty tough. I am capable of doing this. And so day after day after day, I'm achieving these things that I never thought possible. That suddenly puts in your head, wow, I can. 
And I am, I am, and I can, I am strong enough and I can do this. And that was brilliant. So it wasn't necessarily the training, although I got super fit, obviously. Um, But it was more, he put me in situations where I had to prove to myself what I was capable of. He wasn't proving it to me. I was proving it to myself. And there's nothing more powerful than that knowing inside. So he was brilliant and we had an amazing relationship. I mean, he knew how to bring out the best in me um, and challenged me beyond any coach I've ever had. And I've had some amazing coaches in every sport. Um, And for that, I'll be forever thankful. Um, And I do write a lot about him in the book because he truly did change my life in in so many ways. And and I will be eternally grateful to him for that. You know, we have like maybe around 10 minutes before you have to go volunteer at the I want to talk all day. I know, I do too. I have to hit on one thing that I think is really relevant for our listeners, which would be body image. So when the first day you got in your swimsuit and you know took your little cute body down on deck to do a swim mm-hmm. workout, you weren't greeted with "Wow, you already look great." It was a different kind of greeting, and I want to understand what that was like and how it played with your mind, and and if it's important that you consider your weight or how women especially can maintain mental health about their bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd say that's probably the biggest. Um, scar I have from that time and wouldn't change a thing because look what I was able to accomplish but the really sad thing and I have goosebumps thinking about it because it it just it does make me sad is that when I before I went there I actually felt good about myself you know I had no problem racing in my bathing suit or going to a pool party or going to the beach since that time especially since retiring and I'm no longer in the kind of form I was in then, um, my own wife hasn't even seen my bottom straight on um, because I, and I know this and I'm working on this. It's not that I'm going to just leave it like this, but I arrived in my bathing suit. I felt good about myself at that point in time, but I arrived and I got weighed in front of everybody and um Brett said that it looked like I had rabbits in a sack on, you know, and my huge ass and, you know, everybody let Siri get in first because there might be like a tidal wave or a tsunami when she jumps in. And um, from that point, no matter how fit I got, no matter how toned I got, I always believed I had a fat ass. And now every time I get dressed, I feel like my rabbits in a sack are piling out the side. And like I said, my own wife hasn't even seen my, my butt. And that's, that's a problem. You know, I mean, it's, it's not, I I don't want to feel that way. It's hard for me, but I truly believe that I must have, I was a hockey player, you know, I had a, a, had a substantial, well, rear the things that it takes to be an athlete are often different than the things that it might take to look away you think you're supposed to look in society and strength is a really important thing yeah and yeah you probably when you lost some of that weight and became the best in the world maybe you needed to 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 run as fast as you did yeah and that's exactly right like it it definitely Mm. achieved the purpose by getting lighter and getting leaner I dropped, you know, three minutes off my 10K runtime and got down to yeah. 33 minutes. And, and that was something I had never dreamed of. So yes, but it's a hard it needed thing. to be done, but there's a better way. And, and the message, yeah. you're right. It, it didn't maybe way. need to be done emotionally. Exactly. I mean, it, it mm. made the point. 
and it definitely succeeded in, in the purpose, but as a coach, and this, as you can imagine, is one of my, my toughest things that I have to deal with because at this level, I coach a lot of pros and, and it, it is important to get in your best possible fitness. But the way that I describe it is you look amazing as you are now, like, like you're beautiful and strong and athletic and amazing. If we want to go faster, we may need to just cut certain things out and be a little more, you know, Mm -hmm. um, aware of what we're putting into our body. You're amazing as you are, remember, but unfortunately to run really fast, it helps to be lighter. Mm -hmm. So this could be something we can look at. Okay. I'm just going to say that you are a very confident person. You've gone through so much in your life. You've come out the other side it's okay to still have some insecurities. I mean, that's true of everyone, right? I'm actually not that confident though. I mean, that's something, um, I love that you said that, thank you. Well, but, you're, you're continuing to surround yourself by people who see that in you will help you. Yes, totally. But, and, and But what you took from this experience that's made you have more insecurity about your body than you possibly ever should, you are now paying it forward in a really positive way. Trying because to, you really are, trying. it is a touchy subject. It's, and I'm so yeah. grateful for you to be open and honest about it right now. It's so touchy. And I don't ever want to affect an athlete in that way. Because, you know, I, got, I long for the times when I would just prance around in my undies. Like, how free that felt. And there is definitely a better way. We all need to feel, my biggest thing is when we're working hard and we're doing the best that we can and we're doing all the right things, like we all should feel so good about ourselves for that because that's just so admirable and respectful and and there's a, a real beauty in that passion and, and in that commitment. Um, I find every athlete so beautiful no matter what size or shape they are, but yes, Sometimes it's important to be leaner or to lose a couple pounds to go a little faster, but it doesn't mean that you're not beautiful. It doesn't mean that mm-hmm. you exactly. um, aren't perfect the way that you are. It's just achieving a certain outcome may need that to happen. I love that. that. Makes sense. I do, and I get it. You know, you mentioned just now, but I'm not that confident. So is it okay to not be confident? Absolutely. And just embrace that about <laughs> Absolutely. <yourself. laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, dance with it. And if anything- Dance with um, it, baby. You gotta dance with it. And I'm not saying, I'm so proud of the things that I've achieved in my life. I'm so proud of my wife and my family and the fact that I can now live openly. Like, um, you know, we didn't even get to talk about like you coming out and that exploration and all those things that had to happen for you to embrace your full self, like in your sexuality, that's going to be another podcast. Another podcast for sure. But I must say that I'm the most confident I've ever been since I've embraced who I am fully. And since I am able to express all of who I am and not wearing a mask and not rejecting certain aspects of myself. So I think for all of us to feel as confident as possible, um, embrace all of who you are and realize that you are you are most beautiful when you are fully tapping into all of your essence. That's when we're beautiful. And since I've done that, I've been had the most confidence I've ever had in my life. But I think, you know, I'll never assume that I can do something great or, or expect things to happen. Like, and maybe that's not confidence, but um, 
I'm someone who I realize that I have to work so hard for everything that I want to achieve in my life. I have to work hard at my relationships. I have to work hard to maintain the trust of my athletes. And that's not a lack of confidence, but it's also not taking anything for granted and realizing that we always need to be kept on our toes and we always need to care. We always need to try hard because that's what's going to make us great. And that's the important piece of all of it. And I think sometimes if we get overly confident, we slack off in some areas. So I think that's it's a good, a good thing, you know, to always care and always try hard. Well, we have time for our final question. Yes. Um, I ask every, everyone on the podcast. And actually, I interviewed one of your athletes, Rinny. Oh, and no. she was so awesome. awesome. She was incredible. I'm going to do a quick recap. You. Oh, we're still going. We're That's time. my wife, everybody, she's, just so you know. She's keeping a time check. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah we're, last question. We got this. We got this. Um, Siri goes from fearful and insecure as a child. She comes into her own. She becomes the best athlete in the world in triathlon for two years straight, winning the World Cup championship, champion title. Now you are, I would say, the best coach in the world. And if That's not... Really nice. If not ever, you will be the longer you stay with it. So That's the nicest compliment. So ever. no pressure. And I appreciate what you bring Blushing. to this world. I've only ever seen you as the most glowing energy every time I've ever been around you for all the years that I've known you, 15 to 20 years now. Right back at you. You are the exact same, and I love that. Well, then we better hang out. Yeah, we- <laughs> We're going to blow things up. Oh, yeah. All right, so if you could give our listeners one final piece of advice, one nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Come from your heart. Embrace all of who you are. Don't hide any single aspect of your amazing essence. Uh, because when you live authentically and with integrity, you become so incredibly powerful. And we all deserve to create extraordinary lives for ourselves. And the best way to make that happen is by being all that you can be and embracing all of who you are. Yes. Ah! Peace out, baby. Peace thank out. you, thank Siri. You, Love you. Love you. Thank you. Whew. That was probably my favorite interview yet. While Siri's book, Surfacing, is so touching and insightful, more of a journey than a training Bible, her real words, they just have a way of working into your soul. It was like everything she said was one of the final nuggets. I'm just so appreciative of everything she's doing in this world. You can find her on her website, You can get her book on Amazon and other places. Um, Learn more about her incredible nonprofit. If you're in Boulder, do her upcoming race to help the rescue animals. There's just so much to Siri. Go to NicoleDeBoom.com to the show notes and you will find links to all of these things. Um, So that's it. I mean... What more can we say to end that one? I'm just going to let you guys absorb it and mull it over. And uh, if you haven't done so yet, I started a new Facebook group uh, for the podcast so we can keep everything uh, in line there, all in one place. I'm having some of my guests do fun videos and Facebook Lives. Definitely get on there just so you don't have to scroll all over the place to figure out what's going on and where it's coming. It's called Run This World with Nicole Boom. Just search it. It's a Facebook group. 
When you enter, I will accept you immediately. <laughs> Everyone's welcome. All right, you guys. On that note, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.